0: Welcome to the Murthy Law Firm Monthly Teleconference Series. We are certainly honored and delighted to have you here with us attending our teleconference today. On today's panel, I have with me Aaron Finkelstein and Janelle Oklu, two amazing, smart, bright lawyers at the Murthy Law Firm. To those who are not yet familiar with my voice, I am Sheila Murthy, President and Founder of the Murthy Law Firm, And I'm certainly pleased to have a terrific panel to be able to share some very useful information for you all, whether you're business owners or individuals who are permanent residents of the United States. As most of us know, until we become permanent residents, it's the biggest dream and goal for every foreign citizen who wishes to make America their home to make this their permanent home and become permanent residents or green card holders. Of course, as you know, a green card holder, the card is no longer green, was decades ago, but it's something that people just love the idea of saying, I have finally got my green card. But what really happens when one attains that almost unattainable goal of getting that coveted green card? What are the rights and privileges and the obligations, responsibilities of being a green card holder? In today's teleconference... Aaron Finkelstein and Janelle Oklu will go over and answer some wonderful overview questions for us so that you will begin to get a flavor of how to protect it, how to keep your status, and we will get close to even when and how you're eligible to apply for the U.S. citizenship. Um, As most of you know, a permanent resident, a lawful permanent resident or LPR or green card holder, is entitled to live and work permanently in the United States. This means that the person is allowed to travel and work anywhere, practically do almost anything they wish to do, especially if you came in, say, on family-based immigration. On the other hand, if you had entered on an employment-based green card through an I-140 petition, through a U.S. employer who had sponsored you, if the person fails to work for the green card-sponsoring employer after the green card approval, it certainly is possible that the person could have adverse consequences which could affect that person adversely for immigration and citizenship down the road. That's why, as a general rule, most of us advise and inform people that if you obtain your green card through an employer, it is much safer to work for about a year after receiving the green card. So Janelle, I know we keep hearing about this one-year rule to be on the safe side, but are there any exceptions to this one-year rule?
1: Um, Right, Sheila. Well, there is um, what's commonly known as AC-21. That's a law that was passed back in October 2000. It's called the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, AC-21. And with AC-21, it's possible that a person could have changed employers as long as uh, she continued to work in the same or similar Uh, job and the I-140 was approved and the 485 had been pending at least 180 days at the time that uh, the job change happened.
0: Okay, okay, and I know we can get into a detailed analysis of what is the same or similar Mm -hmm, job occupational classification. And to some extent, obviously, that's beyond the scope of today's discussion Mm -hmm. uh, because we're trying to focus on what happens after you got your green card. And if ever there is an investigation or you get some kind of a letter from the USCIS saying, we understand you changed your job, or when you apply for citizenship, those kinds of issues can come back to haunt you uh, if you ended up switching much before that one-year mark, and if it's less than six months, I think it's a clear potential mm-hmm. issue. And we do, every single day, including right now, right before today when I was talking to somebody, they said they left much earlier, and I'm always anxious about stuff like that. Um, and I also understand that, especially you know, in this current economic crisis, there are a number of employers who are forced to lay off or terminate an employee mm-hmm. because the company goes out of business mm-hmm. or the company's just having financial issues. Uh, What if the employee truly wants to stay and work for that employer um, who sponsored the green card case? Uh, but is not able to because the employer either terminated the position or said, I'd love to have you, but I can't afford to keep you any longer.
1: Right, right. Sheila, you're precisely right. Um, In these difficult economic times, um, it is possible that even if an individual wants to work for their green card sponsoring employer, things happen and they're not able to. In that circumstance, I would definitely say to the uh, foreign national employee that it's important to document, document, document. Keep a good record. Um, make sure that you keep, for example, email communications or letters that you got from the employer showing that uh, you were ready and willing to present yourself for employment you uh... had the intention to work for them all along but for whatever reason they weren't able to take you on so for example uh... if maybe there was a press release indicating that sometime soon after you got your green card the company went out of business and clearly That's not your fault. So uh, just make sure that you keep that kind of documentation so that if the issue ever comes up in the future, um, you would be able to uh, show that it, it really wasn't anything that was your fault.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. So for all those who are panicking and anxious and say, oh, my God, I didn't fulfill the one-year rule, Janelle so wonderfully explained that you specifically try to keep that proof of paperwork, the Mm -hmm. documentation from the employer confirming that this was beyond your ability and control, and hopefully it would show good faith if Mm -hmm. if there was ever a future investigation. One of the very common questions that we often get asked, Janelle, is, hey, I just got fired. I got terminated. I lost my job. Now, if I Mm -hmm. accept or take unemployment insurance, Will that jeopardize my green card? Will that jeopardize my filing for citizenship? You know, is that considered uh, some sort of a benefit of the U.S. government? Uh, you know, will that what, – what happens? Is that allowed? Am I allowed to take unemployment insurance?
1: Um, Sheila, the short answer is yes. Green card holders are eligible for unemployment insurance. Um, Unemployment is not considered um, public means-tested benefits. It's something that you pay into while you're working and that your employer has paid into. And uh, if you find yourself um, without a job, if you've been laid off and you're a green card holder, yes, you are eligible for unemployment as long as, you know, of course, you meet the other qualifications uh, that your state sets out.
0: Okay. Super. Uh, Now we're switching gears, and we're going to jump to Aaron, who has surprisingly been really quiet for the last five minutes. And those of you who know Attorney Aaron Finkelstein know that that is a rare treat uh, (laughs) because he is just so knowledgeable and brilliant, and he has all this knowledge and information oozing that he's dying to share with you all. Uh, Aaron, um, so what is another privilege for a green card holder Um, Namely, you know, what are the other relatives or family members that one can sponsor when one becomes a permanent resident or green card holder?
2: Thank you, Shula. That's a great question. I think the biggest point is transmittal, uh, the ability for a lawful permanent resident to file some petitions for either a future spouse or for one of their unmarried children. Um, uh, An individual has the right to file an I-130. It's an immigrant relative petition for a spouse or an unmarried child of any age. Uh, that's not deemed a derivative beneficiary of one of their actual of their green card application. However, given the current backlogs that are going on in relation to uh, filing a petition through the through the uh, through the category for lawful permanent residence for spouses and children, it's generally a good idea to take advantage of this opportunity to file as soon as possible to try to lock in what's referred to as a priority date. To allow the process to go through as quickly as possible, uh, it, it should also be noted that if an individual got his green card through employment, that any spouse or child that he or she had at the time the green card would, was approved can be considered is considered a derivative, and can obtain the same benefit as the principal, the same bre- benefit as the um, as the employee that obtained the green card. Uh, This means that if a person was already married or already had a child that was born abroad, when he or she would obtain their green card, uh, they do not need to file the I-130 petition. Uh, The same would apply for an individual who got his green card uh, through a family-based petition. When he or she was already married, they also would have the same option of this type of transmittal.
0: Okay, and I I remember in one case where the individual, for some reason or the other, contacted us several years after getting the uh, green card and wanted to sponsor the spouse and children... Who was live, uh, because the family was living in India at that time, and multiple lawyers, before he hired the wonderful team at the Murthy Law Firm, kept telling him that he had to file an I-130 petition, and he had to keep waiting and waiting and waiting for the priority date to become current, which could be six or eight years. Otherwise, his fam- wife and children would be separated from him. And we assured him that they were. everybody else had given him wrong information, that we absolutely could do a following to join. We filed the 824, and we were able to bring him and his uh, wife and his uh, f- children um, almost immediately within the six to nine months processing times, uh, and it was p- purely processing time because the priority date was current because it was a very old I-140 uh, labor certification and I-140 with a very wonderfully old priority date. Okay, Aaron, so to continue, so then if a new I-140 petition is not required for certain derivatives, how does the derivative spouse or child get the green
2: card? Well, if it's a derivative spouse or child is already present in the United States and they're in valid non-immigrant status for, uh, for uh, family-based, if it's, if it's employment-based, they're either in valid non-immigrant status or they've been out of status for less than 180 days under the 245K provision, uh, then all they would need to do is file the I-485 application and put it in queue in order to adjust status. If, on the other hand, the derivative spouse or child was living abroad, uh, then the the primary, the person who obtained the green card, should file a form called an I-824 for action on an approved petition for the derivative family member, and um, the case will either go, will go as a follow to join and will process through the consulate.
0: Okay, fantastic. Thanks, Aaron. Now coming back to Janelle. Mm-hmm. Janelle? You know, immigrants tend to be very much closer, and I don't want to say that Americans are not. Americans are certainly close to their family members, but a question I get asked all the time is, how can I bring my mother? Now, I don't hear father as much, but I hear (laughs) mother all the time. How can I bring my mother right away, now that I finally got my green card after waiting six or nine or ten years, bring my mother into the United States as my dependent? So how can one petition or sponsor one's parents or brothers or sisters, after one becomes a permanent resident or green card holder.
1: Okay, Sheila, unfortunately, you, you know, you are right that people are very close to their mothers and fathers, too, and brothers and sisters. But unfortunately, green card holders cannot petition for their parents, nor can they petition for their siblings. Or married children. That is something that's a right that's reserved only for U.S. citizens. So you have to be a U.S. citizen, um, either you know, born in the U.S. or through naturalization, in order to be able to uh, petition for a green card for your parents, your brothers and sisters, or married children. That does require U.S. citizenship.
0: Okay, great. Um, so let's now discuss some of the obligations and the responsibilities. Uh, now that we understood the wonderful privileges of being able to sponsor family members and what you know what all you can enjoy and limitations to that, as Janelle just explained, uh, some of the obligations and responsibilities of a green card holder. Um, is there? I know people keep asking about this. You know what exactly is the responsibility of all non-U.S. citizens, which includes obviously green card holders and non-immigrants, to inform the USCIS about a change in their residence or home or address.
1: Janelle? Right, Sheila. Um, That is in fact right. Basically, anyone who's present here in the U.S. who's not a U.S. citizen, any time that individual moves to a new residence, they have to file what's called a form AR-11 and inform the Immigration Service of what their new address is. In fact, the AR-11 should be filed within 10 days of moving to a new address. The great thing is that uh, these days the AR-11 can be filed online. You can do it very quickly on the USCIS website. That's www.uscis.gov. And uh, just kind of take care of that right away so it shouldn't be a burdensome thing at all.
0: And, you know, this is something that I know even once I think in a Mur- live Murthy chat, somebody said, no, 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 Miss Murthy, I think you got it wrong. Um, you know, I'm Murthy for Americans and Murthy for Indians. <laughs> but but basically said, no, no, I think that uh, you're wrong. It's only for H-1B holders, not for permanent residents. But, in fact, yes. everybody mm-hmm. other than a U.S. citizen has to notify the USCIS of any address change within correct. 10 days of moving to a new address. And there are penalties under the law, as Janelle just explained uh, which is a, considered mm-hmm. a pretty serious violation, which is really scary. Right, Luckily, right. they don't enforce it, and most people mm-hmm. notify them and don't say that I moved you know, three months ago. They mm-hmm. make it sound like they just moved. But really, I guess as soon as you find out, because mm-hmm. the violations happen if there's a knowing violation of the law, and I guess if you didn't know mm-hmm. about it, which you know is sure. the excuse for mm-hmm. most people, uh, but still, you know, why, why not follow it? And all of you who are listening to this are yes. clearly educated and bright <laughs> and mm-hmm. capable. So please do not violate U.S. laws. Um, Aaron. another obligation of a lawful permanent resident or green card holder is to pay U.S. taxes. But what if the person did not earn income in America? What if the green card holder actually lives or has a business or owns property abroad? What happens?
2: Well, you know, somebody once told me the axiom, the only two things that you can't avoid are death and taxes. <laughs> um, I think true. that we would follow this rule of thumb in this situation as well. M- for the most part, lawful permanent residents are subject to United States income tax on all income. It doesn't matter whether it w- where it was earned. Uh, I, I can't emphasize enough that even if the income was earned outside of the United States, there is a strong possibility that it could be subject to U.S. income tax. There are certain circumstances, for example, if there's a treaty or other types of situations where income might be exempt from U.S. taxation, but certainly the income needs to be reported in a timely way and needs to be disclosed to the U.S. government. Uh, i would I would say that this can come back if you say well who 's going to know how 's it going to be turned you know how 's it going to be found out that 's some of the questions I sometimes get. I would just say if it is disclosed and if it is found out, it is certainly something that has some serious penalties, and it also could definitely jeopardize uh, chances of future citizenship
0: and by the way, this is a very common question that I get asked all the time. Because a lot of people have property and income and assets and family and business in other countries, and um, they are told that, oh, it's so confusing and there's too much paperwork. Sometimes the accountants actually tell them, don't bother, but this could be a problem. Now, clearly, there is an income tax treaty between the United States and India, um, where income that is earned in India is exempt from U.S. taxation, but as mentioned, it's important to at least bring it to the attention and show that it was earned but it's exempt and therefore you don't have to pay double taxation on it both in india and in the united states and us has tax treaties with many 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 countries and by the way the entire tax treaty between india and the us is like hardly four or five pages it's not that onerous but if you need desire you know information it's always advisable to consult with a good attorney or tax specialist who specializes in international taxation, preferably with the country of which you're a citizen. Uh, Janelle, jumping back to you, another mm-hmm. thing that the green card holder obviously, mm-hmm. and this is another very common issue, unfortunately, is in, sometimes smart good people do silly things that for which they have to pay a very heavy price. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about crime. And I know crime sounds horrible, but sometimes even a silly small thing like a driving while intoxicated or driving under the influence or shoplifting. Um, uh, you know, all of these c- clearly have some, mm-hmm. c- you know, criminal, it's called as crimes of malterpitude, or they have criminal issues mm-hmm. and could subject a person to removal, which previously used to be called deportation. Can you just go over that briefly? Because I think people are concerned about what happens for a permanent resident mm-hmm. who ends up, hopefully unintentionally or foolishly making some silly mistakes with their life and what are the kinds of penalties that they could end up suffering?
1: Sure Sheila, I'd be happy to go over that. Uh, Basically a uh, permanent resident can be removed or as you said deported um, if she's convicted of an aggravated felony. Now when we use the term aggravated felony uh, you know common crimes such as uh, murder or or rape or drug trafficking or firearms, trafficking in firearms, these commonly come to people's minds. But it's also important to remember that there are a number of offenses that we usually don't uh, consider to be aggravated felonies, or in fact, they're not even felonies under state criminal uh, codes. But when it comes to Immigration, they are considered aggravated uh, felony. Um, some examples of these can be uh, various federal uh, criminal offenses such as money laundering, fraud, or even tax evasion um, uh, if it uh, results in the loss to a victim of over $10,000. So something like that that you wouldn't think of as an aggravated felony, in fact, uh, could be. Also, a green card holder uh, could be subject to removal, deportation, um, if he commits uh, a single crime involving moral turpitude that's punishable by a year or more, um, and if that crime occurs within five years of the person's admission to the United States, or if the person has committed two or more crimes of moral turpitude um, at any time that have not arisen out of you know one single Incident. Um, Now, another thing to uh, keep in mind is that, you know, we've discussed uh, uh, being subject to removal or deportation. But there's also another uh, legal distinction, and that is that certain crimes can make someone inadmissible to the United States. So it could be that the crime um, is not so bad that they would actually deport you. However, if you happen to be outside the country, even for, say, travel, and you're trying to now come back into the United States, and the port of entry could see that you've, uh, you've been convicted of a certain crime, it's possible that they could actually uh, declare you to be inadmissible and not let you back into the country. So there are cer- there's, so there's certain crimes for which uh, we would recommend to people that, hey, it's probably best that you not even leave the United States. So all of that to say... If you're a green, so you're holder. saying even a
0: short vacation, a two-week vacation uh, yeah. is considered you, you an admission. Step
1: outside, and you're trying to come back in. That's considered an admission.
0: Could be viewed as seeking admission into the United mm-hmm. States. And if you're seeking admission, and you have this somehow, and I know people who say, you know, we're very good. We would never do anything to violate the law. I tell people, as I say, things can go wrong. Sometimes mm-hmm. people. Uh, you know may have been driving a little above the speeding limit and god forbid some child somebody crosses and there's death it's Mm -hmm. involuntary manslaughter it could be viewed as involuntary manslaughter and it could have permanent devastating impact because you are now responsible if the child ran and crossed the street and uh, you know you were driving within the speed limit then then there's no case but if you were in violation of the law and it's somehow viewed as reckless or, or, or you know, negligent or reckless. And mm-hmm. reckless is where it can become a big problem and it results in involuntary manslaughter. It's huge. Yeah. And people don't realize that because people think, oh, don't, don't waste my time, you know, talking to me about criminal stuff. I would never do that. But, again, as I said, small little things happen that could go wrong. So if, God forbid, any such thing were to ever happen, it is extremely important to immediately consult with an experienced immigration attorney that is familiar with not just federal. You're talking because this is one of those areas that knowing federal immigration law, because we can only do the federal immigration part of it, we would actually get involved with state criminal lawyers to understand the state impact. And the two laws are then viewed together in trying to coordinate and understand how to minimize the damage if, God forbid, you are ever in such a situation.
2: It's also very, the state differences is just huge because, for example, if you steal a stick of gum in Maryland, you may be subject to an 18 year maximum penalty, which could make it an aggravated felony. However, if you stole that same stick of gum in Virginia, where the maximum penalty is one year, it may actually not be an issue or something that's more easily resolved. So you may have a friend or somebody who says, hey, this happened to me in Florida or Arizona or Boston, and you'd say, oh, I had a similar type of situation. I'm cool because he was cool, but that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. Everything is a case-by-case basis. And if you have any type of incident, it's better to be safe than sorry. And to further elaborate on
0: Aaron's point, it's not even just state law. So if somebody did it, for example, in Massachusetts or Maryland or whatever, the truth is it's the, it's the law on the date that the, the crime occurred. So if five years ago the law was slightly different or two years ago from today— Not only are the jurisdiction issues extremely important, but also the timing and the code and the actual language under the state criminal statute and federal. Bottom line, extremely complex, extremely convoluted area of the law that clearly uh, you want to get absolutely the best possible information to ensure and to try and protect yourself and your family from having to pack up and leave. Um, Erin, does the green card holder have an obligation to actually serve in the U.S. military because with the war going on in Afghanistan and Iraq, everybody is afraid of what this means for their you know, daughters or sons to have to uh, serve in the military. And people have been talking about cons- military draft in America for, for, for a long time now.
2: So, you know, and it is very scary to have a compulsory uh, military draft. The United States does not at this time have compulsory military service. Uh, however, if you're a male permanent resident – between the ages of 18 and 26 years old, you do have to register for something called selective service, which is if there is a draft, the process of which they would, um, they would pick people to be able to serve. Um, this, this can be done at any post office and usually only takes a few minutes to complete. It's filling out something akin to a postcard with your details and information. Uh, failure to register. If you don't register between the periods of the time that you're 18 and 26, uh, if you're 27, for example, late registration or don't register at all, uh, it can affect you and it can result in a denial of your naturalization case. There are some exceptions based on age and time, but generally it's it's something that can have a very negative impact.
0: Okay, good. And all of those exceptions that Aaron just briefly alluded to are available for free in articles in the murti.com and murti website. Uh, and by the way, I do need to point out if anybody is, um, you know, recording today's session it is illegal and unauthorized for you to record this information because it is copyrighted material of the murthy law firm uh, so we would expect and appreciate your cooperating in that and switching off your recorders if you had turned them on and if you hadn't i'm glad to hear that uh, and again please do not uh, do that because it is not legally permissible as it is copyrighted material and information as all of our teleconference sessions are Uh, Janelle, Mm -hmm. um, so now that the person has his or her green card, what happens when he or she wants to travel outside the U.S.?
1: Okay, so basically for a green card uh, holder who wants to travel abroad, uh, they're required to use the passport from their own country. And in that case, the green card serves as somewhat of a visa, allowing you to return back uh, to the United States after travel abroad. Uh, Generally, uh, the green card is valid for uh, reentry for one year. Um, so uh, just to keep in mind that that's not permission to remain outside the United States for extended periods of time.
0: Okay. Okay, great. Thank you, Janelle. Um, And, you know, it's commonly believed that the green card uh, is a permanent residence, but now we have just gone over the ways in which the individual can jeopardize that permanent status. So what should the green card holder do to maintain that status without jeopardizing it.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, uh, uh, Sheila, as you've said, a green card holder is a lawful permanent resident of the United States. So the important thing uh, to remember is that the U.S., America, should be the individual's permanent residence. Um, So if um, ever the person travels outside the U.S., uh, they need to maintain their intent to return to the U.S. as their permanent home. Um, In essence, uh, an individual should always think of the United States as their home and not establish a permanent residence in another country. Um, It's important to always maintain that tie. Uh, with the united states um so i I, I know that one thing that often comes up in uh, consultations is people want to know if it's okay to just kind of touch down in the u.s once every six months you know come back Mm -hmm. to the u.s for about a week um uh, once or twice a year is that good enough and uh, the answer is generally no uh, because if uh the um, customs officials at the port of entry um Uh, Once they notice such a pattern that, you know, wow, this is really someone who doesn't really live in America, they just kind of show up here for a week or so, uh, once or twice a year, that can actually result in the person being put um, in removal. Uh, proceedings, and in
0: fact, very recently, when we were meeting with the CBP officials mm-hmm. uh, at the BWI Airport uh, and near Washington, Baltimore, Washington International, they were actually explaining to us how they're very strict about this, and they do ask a lot of questions. And the more paperwork and documentation one has, like showing continuous payment of te- you know filing of U.S. tax returns, showing your home, your address, your mortgage payments, documents showing your employment in the United States, and your ties to this country, are critical. Uh, to show so that they can actually allow you to enter on your permanent resident status and not have to start a deportation or removal or issue a notice to appear. How else uh, can the USCIS or the officer at the port of entry judge if one has maintained ties
2: to the U.S.? Aaron? Well, I think it's a, it's a very good point that you were mentioning about the ties that the person has. Um, I think there's two critical points that you have to bear in mind. One is if you're out for six months or longer, Uh, They start to get a little bit suspicious six months to a year. I think after a year, uh, based on our discussions with CBP, they actually go to supervisors to get their approval to allow somebody to enter. And if you look Well, at because it, it's
0: deemed automatic abandonment. One that, year is automatic abandonment, and six right. months to one year triggers the red
2: flag. Correct. But now they do have flexibility. Uh, for example, some of the things that they were saying if somebody's in a car accident and they were completely incapacitated mm-hmm. and they weren't able to come in for a year or more, they would for a year or a little bit longer, they'd have some discretion. One thing you But I don't want you to rely on the I exceptions,
0: and they want documentary paperwork, and if they don't, they'll put you back on the next flight.
2: Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. agreeing 100%, but when you're hit by a car and you're in a cast from your toes to your head, mm-hmm. you, I think that you have a good case. Other than that, you might want to start thinking. One thing to bear in mind is it's a totality of the circumstance test, so you should look to see what you can accumulate as your ties to the United States, which may or may not be different from somebody else's. Uh, if you're working for the U.S. company abroad and your assignment got extended for a while, if a mother or a parent uh, gets ill and you're the only child who can help take care of them, other events, other circumstances, everybody might be different. Recognize that it's case by case. And Janelle mentioned before, documentation, documentation, documentation. Be prepared to prove your case at the port of entry. Right. And
0: one of the things that they also mentioned at today's meeting, which I thought was pretty helpful, was, hey, if you're going to be out about 180 days or more, file a reentry permit. So, Aaron, uh, I understand that there are now biometric requirements for the reentry permit, and the green card holder is required, you know, to do the reentry permit. So can you explain a little bit about both the biometric issue and, you know, reentry permit and what, what it means?
2: A re-entry permit is filing an I-131, or re-entry permit. Essentially, it's good for two years, and it permits a uh, a U.S. uh, permanent resident to leave the United States to say, I am putting a placeholder, please understand that I know that I'm leaving for a long period of time, but I fully intend to return to the United States within the two-year limit. It, in and of itself, is not necessarily sufficient so that you don't need other ties, but it generally carries a lot of weight. And will help you to prove or to demonstrate that there was no abandonment. Uh, the biometrics processing that we have right now, what you can do is you can put uh, you can put in a prepaid mailer and request an expedite for your biometrics. Um, and what they do is when you file for a reentry permit, the reentry permit will be received, and then they'll send you a request to perform biometrics. So if you're in a, if you are in a hurry to leave or something, so you would say to yourself normally. I could file the 131, the reentry permit, I could leave the United States and put a request to pick up that reentry permit at the consulate abroad. However, nowadays, with the new biometric requirements, the new requirements require you to get your biometrics taken care of in the United States and then be able to pick up the reentry permit abroad. So if you file the 131, you may say, oh, I can leave and just pick up my reentry permit. No, you would have to come back to the United States or wait to leave until the biometrics is complete. So what there is is a way, there's a little way that you can help to to expedite that, and the way that you can help to expedite it is, like I was saying before, you could put a prepaid mailer uh, and a request to expedite. You can also try to do a walk-in biometric appointment. A person who wants the reentry permit may not succeed with the walk-in appointment, but it's worth a, a try, particularly if the person is in a hurry to go abroad for business, or to start a school program, or has some urgent or some critical matter that needs to be taken care of.
0: Okay, okay, good. But just so you all remember that filing the reentry permit again is not a 100% assurance or guarantee that you can or must be allowed to enter back into the United States. Generally, the CBP, Customs and Border Protection's officials, will give the uh, issuance of the reentry permit substantial weight and don't usually harass a person with a reentry permit. But if they suspect a person has abandoned the intention to be a permanent resident, the reentry permit does not give you 100% uh, guarantee of being able to re-enter the United States and resume your permanent rest and status. Janelle, I know now that the person's done their wonderful time in the country. They want to apply for citizenship, and they've heard all these rumors about, you know, the five years and the three years and what this means. So can you just go over the specific requirements, how a person can become a U.S. citizen of this incredibly great nation, which we know is not perfect, But it certainly is a country that many people still aspire to come to, the different criteria and, uh, you know, what, what, what kinds of requirements need to be satisfied.
1: Sheila, I'd be happy to do so. Um, Basically, the the first kind of base requirement uh, generally to become a naturalized U.S. citizen is someone should um, have a green card. They Mm -hmm. should be a lawful permanent resident of the United States. Um, Now, in order to be eligible to apply for naturalization, and the application for naturalization is known as the N-400, Okay. In order to be eligible, the person uh, generally should have been a permanent resident for at least five years. Um, Now, there is an exception for someone who's married to and living with a U.S. citizen uh, spouse. In that case, it's three years. Okay. And so uh, the individual must also have what they call good moral character. So uh, in uh, kind of the, the briefest form, of course, you shouldn't have committed any crimes within the statutory period, whether that's the five years or the three-year period. And also, uh, you know, other indicators of good moral character are you should so- be someone who pays taxes. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you want to be a U.S. citizen, you should be an honest, tax-paying American. Also, you shouldn't have any kind of outstanding orders for uh, child support or alimony. You should be someone who pays your obligations, you know, if you have obligations to a former spouse or But to there's the no children, dollar
0: Amount is there for how much I should be earning in order to file for citizenship?
1: No, no, no. no. There, there, there is no uh, uh, minimum, minimum um, income uh, okay. to becoming a U.S. citizen. Um, also, uh, the individual is uh, required to have a basic understanding of the English language and also to know something about U.S. government history and the concepts of democracy. And that's going to be tested uh, through uh, the English and civics exam that they give. um, And those tests
0: have all been updated and changed in the last few months. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, Since 2008, there has been um, a new civics exam. Um, It's supposed to be, uh, from what I hear, more conceptual. It's not just mere kind of rote memorizing like the old test was, but you actually have to understand something about democracy and Mm. democratic uh, principles. Which I'm
0: sure most regular American citizens born in America would probably fail.
1: (laughs) i don 't know but i 'll just say it 's not it 's it's not an easy test, but um what I have heard is that generally the pass rates on the new test are about what they were for the old test, oh, so good. it, it hasn 't you know luckily hasn 't stumped a lot of people or, or kept them from becoming u s citizens. Um, The other thing is there's what's known as the physical presence requirement, and that is basically that the person needs to have spent at least half of the time actually physically present here in the U.S. on U.S. soil. So that's half of the five years if that's your period or the three years for people who are married to a u.s citizen now in addition to actual physical presence they have what's called continuity of residence which means that even though you might have you know traveled abroad um you have you've never actually abandoned your residence here in the u.s and so generally an absence um Of over six months outside the U.S. is considered to have uh, broken the continuity of residence. But as long as this absence is less than a year, it's a rebuttable presumption. So as Erin was talking before about the different things you can do uh, to uh, preserve your residence. You know, if it does so happen that you're going to be out for more than six months, then you know. But in general,
0: if somebody has exceeded six Mm -hmm. months, I find USCIS in the most local offices almost never want to approve the uh, citizenship for that person. So once you've crossed 180 days, it's very, very difficult unless you come back and live here minimum four years and one day. Okay? Well, uh, Aaron, yeah. what happens if the co- continuity of residency is broken?
2: Well, before we get to the continuity mm-hmm. of residency, I just wanted to add one or two just real quick points. You know, going way back to when I started uh, in the year in 1990, <laughs> <laughs> purpose, What was that, Aaron? Per- <laughs> purposely <laughs> mumbled, purposely mumble, <laughs> mumbled. <laughs> but I can tell you that, um, that in 1996, they came out with a very important technical correction act to the naturalization rules. And this is critical because a lot of people have older parents who they sponsored or who they have brought in after they themselves became citizens. A lot of people have situations or circumstances where they may have some kind of limited disability for learning to read or write English or from learning to mm-hmm. memorize something or from being able to memorize in a foreign language civics or history. Um, and it's just good to know that there are some available. Um, there are some available. I don't want to refer to. The, uh, I'll refer to them as waivers, medical disability waivers. They don't make make a person. You don't have to be crazy, or you don't have to have a ment- You don't have to be mentally. Um, I want to use deranged, a harsh way, deranged <laughs> but they are something that could have to do just simply with a disability for learning to read or write or understand. So that's something that I think is uh, is very, very important.
0: Okay, Aaron, I know we're really short on time. We're 40 minutes, and we have to wrap up between 30 to 45 minutes. Okay. So we're kind of getting really sure. running. so you
2: asked the question. But about
0: basically it's medical waivers, and there are everything in the world. Practically right. with any law, and, is there's an exception to right.
2: the law. And the, only, and the only other point I want to say real quick in 10 seconds okay. is you may lose at the USCIS if you've been out for six months and you've documented it. You may lose to the 336, this, the first level appeal. But I'm pretty sure if you file a writ of mandamus to compel the government to make a fair decision, that the officer, that the uh, that the U.S. attorney and the judge may say, let's give this a second look. So if you feel that you're in that situation and you're pushed for citizenship, don't necessarily give it up right away. Uh, shifting to your question about breaking the continuity, I would tell you that once the continuity for residency is broken. Uh, The person who returns to the U.S. must reestablish the continuity for a period of four years or a day, and a day, or in the case of someone married to a U.S. citizen, two years and a day uh, before. And by the way, the three month
0: month rule does not apply to that uh, four years and uh, one day rule. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so what if I'm being actually transferred by the employer? Um, you know, and I'm required to be there for a really long period of time. Does that break the continuity of residence, or what are my options?
2: Well, a common problem faced by some permanent residents in the modern U.S. workforce is the preservation of their continuity of residency, uh, and primarily they're concerned about it in order to qualify for the, for the naturalization. Uh, at, we at the Murphy Law Firm, we receive more questions on this matter than ever before, I think that US immigration law does provide a mechanism, does provide a way for permanent residents who are absent from the United States for more than one year to to preserve their continuity for naturalization purposes. There's a form called N-470, and filing this N-470 can be a solution for these people. Okay,
0: Janelle, we'll let you wrap up. But basically, because of the economy and because of situations, a lot of people don't have jobs. They're losing their jobs. They're getting terminated, and they're saying, hey, the Indian economy is growing even at a conservative 6 percent, which is more than double or three times of the U.S. economy right now. Why can't I go back and work there because I already got my green card? And we're saying don't jeopardize your green card. Don't just throw it away. Don't abandon it. File the reentry permit or file the N-470 if you're working for a U.S. employer and you're being sent abroad to improve trade and commerce with the United States. So, Janelle, can you briefly give us a quick overview in a minute or two Mm -hmm. on what is the N-470 and who is eligible to file it and how can one qualify
1: Sure, Sheila. I'd be happy to do so. Basically, the N-470 is the application to preserve residence for naturalization purposes. So, as you said before, for people who are going to be abroad for an extended period of time, take care of the reentry permit. Get the reentry permit. Unfortunately, the reentry permit it's not going to preserve your residence for naturalization. That's only going to come with the N. And uh, the people who are eligible to file N470s are individuals who are employees or contractors of the U.S. government, American research institutions, or employees of American uh, companies or their subsidiaries who are engaged in um, foreign trade and commerce, okay? And also uh, certain individuals who are performing uh, religious duties. Um, outside of the United States. Basically, in order to file the N-470, the person must have been physically present in the United States for an uninterrupted period of at least one year, 365 days. After becoming a lawful permanent resident, now I realize that this is probably a difficult hurdle for some people to overcome. You're telling me even a
0: two-week vacation outside would break it. Even two
1: days. Oh my God! That is so unfair. It's ridiculous. Qualify for the N four seventy. So you need to have three hundred and sixty-five uninterrupted periods. You know, physically here in America
0: aha uh-huh. okay mm-hmm. well i i know we could go on and there are some really other interesting issues uh, i'm sure some of you have been reading murthy.com have read about the mav and i the mavni program uh where you can actually bypass being the permanent resident altogether mm-hmm. if you're a healthcare professional a doctor a nurse therapist maybe even certain uh interpreters of certain languages like tamil um punjabi um, you know some indian language urdu some languages were included which i thought was fascinating where you could actually agree to work for a certain period of time, either a three-year contract or a six-year commitment to work in the military-selected reserve, and you could bypass being a permanent resident and get citizenship if you're in valid status. And so there are some exceptions. You know There are lots of articles, as always, on Murthy.com. Again, on behalf of all of us at the Murthy Law Firm, specifically, Attorney Aaron Finkelstein, Janelle Oklu, and myself, Sheila Murthy, we are thrilled to have you participate and attend in today's teleconference. We look forward to continuing to help you. And if you're ready to file for that U.S. citizenship application, you know where to get it. If we helped you with your green card, we would love to continue to help you and your family to become citizens. And if we didn't help you, this is your one golden opportunity to hire the incredible uh, Murthy Law Firm team. Again, thank you for joining us and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye.